Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. So it ended up being $300,000 in total that I invested, which if you know me and my background with my degrees and life experiences, you'd be just going, well, why did you do that? Um, but in my head and in the, the logical process that I'd gone through, I'd used my lawyers, I'd got through this process and done all these things to get set up. And unfortunately, the day that I, or the day I was about to switch the money over to him, and I did that, my friends who had been digging in the background, looking for his identity, and going, something's not right here, something's not right here, they found who he was. Hi, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry, and this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode. Another episode. So, Tara, are we going to say that every time that we have a new episode? 100%, because every episode is a new episode, and it's great. Well, I guess at least until someone complains, but they never complain about you, so. Well, no, we did have a complaint the other day about me, about my likes. Oh, about your likes. Yes, and I acknowledge it. I'm working on it. It's a process. It's like a process. (laughs) Yes. Look, we all got stuff we can work on, me included. And hey, now that you guys are listening to this episode, we are currently on an airplane heading to where? Orlando, Florida to go to CrimeCon. We are heading to the world of Mickey Mouse. Yes, but you know, it started in California first, but the parks over there are probably better. I don't know if they're better. I think they're bigger, right? It's Disney World versus Disneyland. I feel like there's a land, but now there's the, the there's the Disney California Adventure, which you know has been out for like 20 years, and then there's the oh yeah the Star Wars Land. So that adds. I don't think they have that over in Florida. I don't think they have a Star Wars Land, do they? I have no idea. I have never been over there, but the Star Wars Land in Disneyland is just amazing. It's is pretty awesome. And we're going to get to see who today because we have a guest, Emma Ferris, but we're seeing who? We're going to see her sister, Sarah Ferris, at CrimeCon as well. There we go. Uh, and so it, we're keeping it all in the CrimeCon family. But yes, if you are in Orlando, Florida this weekend, come and check us out at CrimeCon at the... World Center Marriott. We're going to have a table there. We would love for people just to stop by, chit chat, say hi, maybe grab a t-shirt, and a, sticker. a book. I'll have Deb's book. Yes. Free stickers for people. Yeah. We'll be on podcast row with all the other podcasters. It's going to be a lot of fun. And we're going to be doing a live podcast from the floor on my YouTube channel and on our social media stuff. Yes. Live podcasting. And then Sunday, we're going to be interviewing each other for our podcast live. Yes, we're going to be doing that too. I totally forgot about that. That's also happening. (laughs) Yep. Let's make it happen, Collier. Let's make it happen. Yes. In the world of CrimeCon. And we're going to get to see our friends. You know, we just just spoke to Justin from Generation Y. Uh, he's going to be there and because um, he's a he's a crime con OG, as he was telling us. And it's going to be a fun time. We're looking forward to seeing a lot of our peers and colleagues. And yes, it's going to be a good time. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I forgot to tell you, Scott, from What Was That Like, that podcast that I was on, he's coming out too. And we're going to get to meet my relatives who are coming in yes. from uh, someplace in Florida, like not too far away, who I've never met. They're on my mother's side. I've never met them before. They're doing our family tree and I'm super excited to, to meet them. It's going to be awesome. The Ledwith side of the family. I love that so much. Well, let's get into today's episode. It's about Emma Ferris. She conned her con artist back. She has a podcast about it. So we're going to get to know her story. Yeah. And her podcast is called Conning the Con. And her story is pretty, pretty good. And, you know, you dealt with a con artist. So you know a lot about this. Yeah. I hate those con artists. Yeah. They're tricky. Well, let's get into it, shall we? Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. So why don't you start to tell us a little bit about your story and your con artist? My story started in 2018 when I met a guy called Andrew Tonks Thompson, though his name back then was Andrew Tonks. And I first got to know about your story, actually, Tara, back then, because it was a very similar story to what I was going through, but I was more of your mother. So there was a very much of a crossover between what I was going through and uh, what we call now Dirty Andrew. So I met this guy after dating a few different people after divorce. So I'd been married for about 13 years. I had been kind of just seeing what was out there after, um, I guess, starting online dating for the first time. I don't know if you guys have done that before at all, but it's kind of a, a whole new thing for me when you've been married to someone for a long time. So I unfortunately met this guy named Andrew who on Tinder, so obviously there are lots of different dating apps that are out there, and he showed up into my dating app profile and it was um, not love at first sight by any means. It was just a very slow burn, but he was very insistent in meeting up and catching up and getting to know me. And he had all these things in his profile, like a entrepreneur, he was um, really outdoorsy and active. And unfortunately, he seemed to wiggle his way into my life over about six months. And I had these moments along the way that felt like red flags. They were red flags. But because he had actually changed his name legally, I didn't know that he was actually somebody different. So I tried to search, tried to find out who he was, but I couldn't find it. And it was about over the few months that I met him, my sister Sarah uh, was sort of starting to notice these little wee things and would question me on it. Others would question me on, oh, why is this guy behaving this way? Or this seems unusual. Um, and it wasn't until, and I was really stoical that I, you know, finally maybe found someone that was probably quite good and showing up and being really kind and things that, not that I didn't have those things in my marriage, but just hadn't met some good quality people in my life and relationships since divorcing. And so the big part for me was that uh, he sort of worked his way in with my family and with my children over about six months. And he decided 
a few months earlier than that, though, right at the start to build this elaborate lie around who he was, what he did, and this con framework. So I hadn't, I haven't been brought up with anything like that in, my, in the past, but this guy uh, decided to um, work with me in building a loan document, which seems really silly right now, but he tried to tell me about these properties that he was investing in and all these different property deals and the ways that he'd made money in the past and how he was a really successful entrepreneur and that how eventually when I was like, yeah, that doesn't sound like me. That doesn't sound like me. No, thank you. That's not like me at all. I'm only here for getting to know you. I don't want to know anything about your business or any relationship stuff or any of that sort of stuff. Um, but unfortunately, he kept kind of coming out and I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is a, a business opportunity for me. And about five months into the relationship, he just very casually put this document into my um, office and said, hey, just have a look at this. I had some help when I was getting ahead in business with somebody helping to invest. And I think this would really, really help you. And this document that he actually produced was uh, absolute forgery in the end. But what he was trying to say to me was that I can help you out by um, being like a, an angel. And I could be an investor in his company and he'd get returns. Um, I'd get regular returns over as long as I want to have the money in there for. And it's as much as I would like and for as long as I would like. And it would just, you know, just to help me out. And so I sat with that for a few days and it seemed still really weird and crazy. I was like, oh, no, I'm not really comfortable with that. And then he kept pursuing it and said, oh, well, you know, why don't we talk to lawyers and stuff? So I was like, well, I'm not going to put a document or sign anything without talking to lawyers. So I went to talk to my lawyers and I had them write up what it could look like. They didn't have any massive red flags at that stage either. And they hadn't done a big part of background research in it. But unfortunately, it was enough of a lie with his name change, with him setting up businesses in the country that I live in, that he was able to fool more than just me, but several people and several businesses. So the short story is I unfortunately invested uh, a small amount of money at the start. Well, not that small, actually, 50,000 New Zealand dollars, about 25,000 US. And then he started to show the returns in this to show that the money was coming back and you know he came back to me and said oh it's working so well for you babe it's working so well I really think this could be something that you could um, benefit if we expanded it out again and did more you know you can put in as much as you want so he was going for more money and I sat with it and that point in time I was uh, self-employed, so I'd been working my butt off and for years and years and years, and I had a house and I was trying to get back ahead after divorce and going, right, I'm going to try and build assets and buy properties, which I was already starting to do. And unfortunately, he preyed on that, that need for me for my financial security. And I decided that, okay, this is, this is too good an opportunity, which again, absolute red flag with the interest rate and that he was proposing. And I decided to invest another big chunk of my equity of my house. So it ended up being $300,000 in total that I invested, which if you know me and my background with my degrees and life experiences, you'd be just going, well, why did you do that? Um, but in my head and in the, the logical process that I'd gone through, I'd used my lawyers, I'd got through this process and done all these things to get set up. And unfortunately, 
the day that I, or the day I was about to switch the money over to him, and I did that, my friends who had been digging in the background looking for his identity and going, something's not right here, something's not right here, they found who he was. But that was unfortunately one day too late from when I'd done the big transfer. And I think that was 2019. And so that day was when my, my world fell apart, basically. I had to figure out how do I survive after being conned. And I had no experience with this at all. So that was kind of the, the story from in a nutshell. So did, did your friends find out that he was a con artist? Is that what they said? He, he had conned a bunch of people? Yeah, so they dug deeper than I had, even though I had done the research. They looked into his business names on our New Zealand registry, because I'm based in New Zealand, and had then clicked on links, like so many different links, to then find the form that he'd signed to sign up for a business. Like it's really in depth, the levels that they went to to find yeah, out who he was. Yeah. And they found the other name. They then put that name into Google, and what came up were the articles that he'd been in jail for fraud only two years previously in New Zealand. And so they were like, oh my goodness, we don't know who this person is. We've got to tell Emma, we've got to protect her. And they were phenomenal. And in some ways one day too late, but also one day just in time because that day made all the difference. Wow. It's a bit of a crazy story. Wow. So what happened then? So that day, I it was it all sort of unfolded in a really weird period. So it was a Monday, I transferred the money. And Tuesday morning, I woke up and was thinking it was just a normal business day. But my good friend, Joe, had been messaged me very early in the morning to check that Andrew, the con man, wasn't there. And we said, are you alone? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm alone. And she goes, I have something to tell you. And she basically dropped the link of him being a a con man or a fraudster in New Zealand into my inbox, my messenger. And I was like, oh, I remember at that moment, the world kind of falling over and then yet not wanting to quite believe it, unfortunately. And then it took me a little bit to then, she came around to my house and was like, it's true, Emma. And I, I looked back at all the pieces and I went, oh my God, it actually is, this is unbelievable. So over the next 24 hours, I just had to figure out how to fight. And I remember being in shock for a few hours, but still also going to work at one point, working with an, an American client that I work with who comes over to New Zealand. And then in the background, my brother had been looking to, with the, working with the fraud department in New Zealand to stop the transactions that he'd made. So in that day, I was able to freeze $250,000 that he'd taken the day before, not knowing if I was going to get any other money back. So within 24 hours, I had uh, found out who he was, stopped who he stopped the, the transactions going out, but I didn't know how much I'd stopped or how much money had been going out as well. And then I had to figure out what it would look like to fight because in New Zealand, the police are kind of slack is not the right word, but um, they don't take this kind of crime very seriously unless something's really physically in danger. If someone's robbing you in your house, oh, sure. they'll turn up, sure. um, but not for something like this. So then I had to figure out the steps to work with my lawyers, with the, um, then with the police eventually within the next few days. Uh, but I also had to figure out how to get that money back as best I could. Where was he during this time? So I live in New Zealand in a, in a place called Queenstown. 
and he was in Queenstown as well, but I was in about 45 minutes away in a small town uh, where a lot of the Hobbit's been filmed and beautiful area to be living in. But it's a one-way road, so I live like 45 minutes and you at the end top of a lake. And he he was still far enough away that he could get there. And if he came up to where I was living, there was no police around for an hour. So at that point, I began to be very fearful. And it took about two and a half weeks. And then he fled New Zealand to Australia, where he was from. And so over that that two and a half weeks, I remember driving around, still trying to function and do life without many people knowing this was happening and having like slight panic attacks in a car when I would like see a car that I thought was his, like a Ford Ranger driving past and, and freaking out. But, um, but from the day that I met, I knew who he was actually, I only met him once more, which was that afternoon. And it's because I went to the bank. I had a, a slightly, now I look back, a crazy elaborate plan that just seemed to be the only way to get the money back. And to do that, I had to go to the bank because the, the bank had frozen the money, the fraud department had frozen it. And they said, I have two options. Option one is to wait for the police to get on top of this and the money will freeze and maybe you'll get that money back, but you have to go to court. Option two is to get the con man or Andrew to sign over that money to me in person. So at that moment, I had to pretend I didn't know who he was. So he didn't know I knew who he was for two and a half months. I had to keep up the con many ways, conning him back. And I remember driving down to the, the bank and knowing that he was going to turn up. He was like, yeah, yeah, no, I'll sign it over, whatever, that's fine. It's, it's not about the money. I, he already had a big chunk of money so that he was just trying to stop this whole house of cards falling down. Sure. But when I went to the bank to see him, it was the most har harrowing moment of my life I think I've ever had, actually. And it seems so sim so minor, but I didn't know who I was dealing with. I felt safe in the fact that there were cameras around and that the, the bank people all knew what was going on. Like the they had the fraud department on standby. I had driven in and talked to the police beforehand. And they were like, well, you're doing quite well to get any money back. <laughs> that was kind of what they said to me. Good luck with going to the bank. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> and I went into the bank and met him. I had an awkward like hug. I think there was a kiss. I sort of black out this experience now. Oh, because me the shivers just thinking about it. And I had to stand with him there while we waited for them to get the documents. And this is when his true colors began to shine through. There was two things he said to me in the bank that make me feel quite, yeah, well, one thing really was sick was that he, he was like, I know people in, in the area that can hurt your family, basically hurt your brother. Uh, and the other one was around my kids and they can take people away for hurting for doing this sort of stuff he's like well you know if people lie about these things they can take people's kids away for this and i was like oh he knows enough that he's trying to intimidate and manipulate me in a moment when i am in public so did you did so did you think that he knew that you knew about the con i did I didn't know it was because so in that morning we'd had messages back and forth I hadn't spoken in person and I was it was very much the manipulation he would send through the coercion the the gaslighting with it it's like is somebody trying to stop this going through somebody's pushed you know 
how am I impacting my money? And the bank's calling me now going, what's going on here? Is this you, babe? Like the messages were so full on and intense and I, I had to basically lie, which is not my forte. And to say, no, I don't know who this is. I don't know what's going on here. And then I began to say, well, actually, I think my, my family's found out that I've done this investment. My brother, who's on my trust in New Zealand, isn't happy. And they're the ones, they're the ones making me get this money back. So it's not about you. Oh, you know, I'm the victim as well. I'm so sorry this is happening to you. So I had to basically play the game to, which is very weird in the moment, but to be able to make sure he didn't know who, that I knew who he was. So I don't know. I still don't know to this day, like the, the way it went in the next two and a half months, I don't think he did know, but I just don't understand how he didn't as well. Mover Nation, you guys all know how I lead a really busy life, right? And I know we could all use a little more relaxation. Now, whether you're trying to chill out or just need a good night's rest, Next Evo's CBD will be your best friend. But, and this is big, not all CBD products are created equal. Shockingly, a study found that many CBD brands contain as little as 60% of what their labels promise. I've been trying out Next Evo Naturals and Movers. It's the real deal. And their commitment? Well, it's giving you exactly what's on the label. Remember, they've undergone four clinical trials, a feat unmatched by any other brand of CBD. Now, I personally adore their Stress CBD Complex Gummies. When I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed, they are a total game changer. And those nights when sleep is all too elusive for me, the triple action CBD sleep does absolute wonders. Leave summer stress behind and upgrade your CBD. Go to nextevo.com forward slash MPT to get 25% off plus a free bottle of premium pure CBD, a $50 value, limit one use per customer. That's N-E-X-T-E-V-O dot com slash M-P-T. You know who Bernie Madoff is, right? Yeah. So that was the thing with Bernie Madoff. He had enough to $300 million. So if people wanted to withdraw, he could pay those people off because it is a Ponzi scheme. So they have enough in reserve yep. that they can just pay a couple people, but they can't pay everyone, right? So I'm sure that he was like, okay, well, at least I have, you know, if that's 150 or 300, right? Okay, but at least I have another million here because he doesn't want to admit the, the fraud. But what happened to him? So in the next two and a half months, I had to still keep communication with him. And so he flew back to, so that day I got $200,000 transferred back over to me. So there's, there's so much web of lies to it. And you were so right, Collier, about that, uh, like paying somebody to then take away from somebody else. Like that's exactly what he was doing. So he'd spent part of that money to, as a deposit on buying a gin and vodka company as well. So a distillery and so he couldn't give me that money back. But then she, the lady that was part of that business became another part of the web of lies. So I'll, I'll park her cause she's kind of a whole other story in itself. But that's one of the reasons why I didn't get a big chunk of my money back because he gave it to her. So I got quite a big, big bit of money back that day. And then from then I never saw him until I saw him a few months later in court without giving too much of a spoiler alert. And he then flew back to Australia, escaped to Australia. At that point, the police were involved and we did have a, we didn't have a warrant for his arrest, which is super annoying to me. We had a border alert out. So we knew if he would leave the country, what would happen and where he was going to. 
So he flew to Australia where his family are from. He's from a place in Tasmania and he still keeps his communication going with me, which was super weird. Like I knew that he'd left the country and the thing that is the craziest part is two days after he, I found out who he was and I got part of that money back, he decided to write me the story. And we, it was called the Tonka Trilogy because his last name was Tonks. And it is the most random, elaborate story of his life. So it's about his life and the way that he is. Okay. And so he kept adding, I know it's quite bizarre. Um, it ended up being laughter therapy when he'd sent a chapter through to my sister and I, who was living this story with me. And it would be about how he turned out the way he is. And it would have all the stories he'd told me in those six months before kind of speckled through, but then embellished. So it got to the point he was saying he was an international spy that he'd worked for, yeah, it worked for Australian, uh, I can't remember what their FBI version is now. Before At that time, we were Googling everything and being like, well, this isn't true. And he was saying he was part of the, like some serious crime, helping stop some, some serious crimes in New Zealand and Australia. And the stories that he would write in this Tonka trilogy, and he even had these titles, like the first title or the first chapter title was, I was a fat kid and I loved cake. So it's a sob story about how did he even get to the way he is? You know, his family, it's just the bizarrest twist in this whole process. So while I'm trying just to survive and get my kids to school and work my business and then figure out how to get any of that money back on the side, this guy is tap, tap, tapping on his computer, writing me an elaborate journal of what he thinks is going to help me to distract me or something. And the, it ended up being about 15 pages of just comedy gold is what we decided. So we've included it in our podcast that my sister and I did write. I'll talk about that later on. And then so at that point, we were just trying to figure out, well, how do we get the money back? How do I get any money back from him? Um, and if there was any more chance of getting it, so there was still about $100,000 outstanding. So he sort of dribbled back a little bit of money over that time, which was useful really useful. So I got about $90,000 was still outstanding at the end. And over that time, he, we began to untangle. When I say we, this is my sister who's based in London. So she's working from afar, living her best life because she just loves true crime. <laughs> and she, I still remember her, the one line, she's like, oh my God, I'm so made for this. I have been like waiting for like this true crime opportunity. I'm like, well, I haven't. This is not what I was made for. But in saying that, she was like my sidekick and was going like rogue, as you may know about her, on um, finding out all these little webs of the story. So she was uncovering this restaurant that he was trying to con. And this is all in the two, month, two and a half month window about when I found out who he was and then when he got caught. So we, we began to put all these parts of the puzzle together, whether it was the alcohol company, whether it was the um, restaurant or the properties he was trying to buy. Like he had contracts, contracts um, signed for million dollar properties that there was no way he was ever going to be able to pay for. So it wasn't just me, but I was a key part of the puzzle. And so over those two and a half months, the police then had built a case. They had built enough story from my input and from the other people that they had an arrest warrant waiting for him at the border. And I never thought he was going to come back into the country. 
I never thought that he would ever come back, but it was one thing that my sister and I were like, what if we just tried to get him back? What if there was one way or there was some other cons that he was working on still that was the reason for him to come back over here? And it was a slow process, but it was a very much these messages back and forth to him. Again, just by text, nothing else. I would never talk to him on the phone. And I said, I just wish that you know you could come back over we can sort this out and he goes well you know maybe i'm looking at doing that and it kind of unraveled and then one day it was a thursday i remember that very clearly my kids were at school i was at home between meetings and stuff and work and i get messages from him and i'm just like oh i'm so over just this constant like torture of not knowing when this is going to end and then my sister who's in london it was night time for her and she's still kind of communicating. She's just loving the whole process in some ways, the little sicko that she is. She's like, oh, message, message him this. So many of the messages became via, via her that I was sent to him. And she, well, we ended up getting this message back saying, well, I'm, why don't we meet in New Zealand at the place that we first met, which is a beautiful place in near Queenstown called Millbrook. It's got a 18, not 36 coal hole whole golf course and really gorgeous spot. I remember being like, huh, is he really doing this? You know, of course he's not coming back into the country. And then the messages kind of seemed even weirder. Like it was like, well, you know, if I meet, is anybody going to be, am I going to be stopped coming into the country? And of course I'm like, no, who would stop you? <laughs> I don't know who's going to stop you coming into the country. And then I remember waiting and watching the messages and being like, right, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to, I'm going to turn it off. And he had this kind of code word that when he was going into undercover mode, he would go dark on you. He's like, I'm going dark. I've got to go dark. So I was like, the last message I sent to him was like, I'm sorry, I've got to go dark now. I've got work to do. <laughs> then I get a phone call from, no, it was a text. It was a text, a text from the detective I'd been working with, Detective Matt. And he just sent this really simple text. Um, just found out uh, Tonks is en route to Christchurch, which is one of the cities in New Zealand, and is landing in half an hour. We'll keep you updated. I just like lose it. And I just can't. I remember like screaming, messaging Sarah in London going, oh my God. And then dot, dot, dot. And she just sits bolt upright at night being like, tell me what's happening. Tell me what's going on. And we just had to wait. It was this like, this like whole process of going, what's happened so are they are they trying to arrest him then yeah so i have this like in my head this vision of like border security tv show where he's like thinks he's coming off the planes he'd been texting me via the wi-fi on the international flight and so that's why it was so like close by and then he must have got off and got arrested before he'd got through border security oh that airplane wi-fi gets you Gets you every time. Yeah. See, that's why I don't log on to airplane Wi-Fi's, airport Wi-Fi's or anything. No one needs to know my IP location, dress, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think it's like now you have, I have that mindset and you might have that mindset because we experience these men. Yeah, I, I remember thinking after that, I didn't know how far he had gone in depth. So everything was changed afterwards, but he hadn't got onto passwords or any of the level of deception that he could have done. Okay. But yeah, your trust is completely abused in that process. So then he was arrested and that was a 
a huge relief and I remember thinking now I can breathe but actually now I need to start recovering because I'd been in the survival mode for two and a half months and it was exhausting and then then the work started of like okay here's the future court process and he didn't plead guilty so it was a really long process of going fighting uh, to go be like just say you did it like all the evidence is really clear and so it took from July, no, June of 2019, he was arrested. And then he was in prison for, in rep remand um, for, I think, till March the year after, because he wouldn't plead guilty. So they went through this process and said, look, mate, we've, here's the evidence. You've pretty much, you've done this. We know you've done it. Uh, so if you plead guilty, here's your option. And that was like November that year. So he'd been in jail for three or four months. He knew the system as well. We have a very weird system in New Zealand. If you stay in this like holding pattern for reprimand for that time in jail, then when you get sentenced, whatever time you were in there beforehand counts as, as double that amount. So if you're in there for six months, they'll take a year off your sentence. And so as he knew that process, he was trying to drag it out for as long as possible. And so it wasn't until, I remember my birthday, I found out in December he'd finally pled guilty. And then it wasn't until start of March 2020, like just before the pandemic came in, that he was actually officially sentenced. And I went to court and spoke and did all that fun stuff and the sentencing. It's also very similar in the United States. It just depends on the state that you're in or the level of crime, if it's federal or, or state crime, because you'll get, you'll you know, like in Los Angeles County, you get two and a half days time served. <clears throat> if you sit really? in county jail before you have a sentence, yeah. So it just depends on what you're sentenced for or what, what you're up for and what it is. If it's a federal crime, state crime, local <laughs> crime, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, but we have the same, very similar thing, which is one way to ride the court system, right? <laughs> so yeah. they end up giving you time served. Yeah. Absolutely. And so he only got sentenced for, I think, two and a half years and served like 18 months of it. So w was the case just you or were they, because obviously he was defrauding other people too. So did, were they incorporated into all of this? Yeah. So when I went to court for the first time, when they were doing the, like, here's what this is about, that's when I first heard what the charges were. And there was a lot, but they basically said the first two are the main ones and they were against me, both of them. Uh, I think the first one was basically fraud in a special relationship and then forgery as well. So they were, they were the, the main ones. And so what Everly was, even though there was these other crimes, there were so many other ones, they kind of washed away and they weren't as important, even though it was really clear they were a part of it. They sort of got acknowledged a little bit in the sentencing, but, you know, two months here, four months for doing that, six months for forging that, you know. It, it wasn't actually as much as I would have expected for all those crimes being in that he was up for. So yeah, it was just me, basically. I was the one that they went, you've screwed her over, this is what it's about. You have prevailed, but what happens, so he goes to, you because usually like in the United States, when you go to prison and you pay your restitution, right? But if he has <laughs> outstanding, so if you have outstanding cases, right? So there's all these other people that he defrauded, but if most of the charges are coming from you or the case is really from you, what happened to the, let's say he stole a million dollars from three other yep. people. Did, does that mean that that just is a wash, that that money 
because if he has to pay restitution to you, you're basically taking their money. Like, how does that work? Because financial crimes in the United States, for example, if somebody steals money from a bank, right? Let's say you steal $30 million from, from Chase Manhattan Bank, but you also defraud, you know, uh, Emma Ferris of $250,000. $30,250,000 is what needs to be recuperated for you to get your money back because the bank will get its money back first, all of it. It's yep. very, it's very weird what happens. So I'm curious if that's the same thing. Well, do, I guess the thing in New, difference in New Zealand and Australia and uh, the states is that it wasn't necessarily considered that I would get that money back. So I, he was sentenced with reparations to pay, and this was like just the other little bit of twist that went to the story. So there was, even though it was like eighty-eight thousand dollars outstanding, and he'd given. 25000 to this uh, gin and vodka company, the judge said, well, actually, since you've, since that money's gone to them, that doesn't actually matter. You know, you should go after the money there yourself. Go, go find it yourself over there. Um, and I, I tried to talk to the owner of the gin company because the legal documents would technically have me as being a shareholder in it. And she was like, no, nope, I've been screwed over too. No, nope, you're not getting the money yeah. back. Well, I mean, which is, yeah. Fair enough in some ways, but it was I was the reason that she found out who she was being screwed by as well. So I was protected her along that journey. Um, and then the judge said, therefore, we think that here's a sentence and I wish you could, we could give you longer. Like he was actually, the judge was amazing. He's like, what you've done is awful. This woman didn't deserve it. There's nothing that she did that would re be the reason why this would have happened to her, um, which is quite big to hear when you've gone through a process of bit of shame around this as well and being conned and but he said i can't give you longer but you need to pay the sixty six thousand dollars basically and i think five thousand in emotional damage or something it was still nominal overall a few months later while he's in in prison he goes to the high court and uh, asks for that to be reduced due to hardship on him <laughs> oh yeah so that when he comes out of jail a few a year and a half later, I'm like, oh, well, maybe this is my investment kind of finally come back sort of thing. I'm like, does this actually work? And when I rang the reparations in New Zealand, they said, oh, sorry, we can't tell you how much is owed to two other people, but there's two other people in front of you in the queue. And we don't, like, basically don't hold your breath. And this, so similar to that, you know, who's first in there? Well, I was supposed to be the next on the list, but there was no guarantee. And then he flew back to Australia. So there's no guarantee now I'll ever see any of those dollars. Oh, wow. This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Emma Ferris. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.